Good morning, my friends. Thanks for joining me. Just wanted to let you know ahead of time that this sermon is less of a cohesive three-point analysis of this text and more of a rambling, grief-filled exploration of it. I just didn't have it in me to be decisive and all put together this week. So I hope we can ramble through this passage together and maybe find some meaning in the midst of chaos and confusion. Let's pray. Eternal God, join us in these human moments together. Come and dwell in our homes and in our hearts this morning. Hide not your face from us. Meet us in our own journeys. Comfort us in our doubts. Strengthen us in our trials and tests. Provide the impossible at the times and places that we need it most. Here I am, Lord, in my weakness and my brokenness. May these simple thoughts lead us closer to you. Amen. Abraham and Isaac, what a doozy of a scripture reading for today. I do like a challenge, as many of you know, but this is more like a punch to the gut. In many ways, this passage is likely familiar to you, or at least so I assume. The Ark of Genesis is so woven into the fabric of our faith, and Abraham has been a central figure so far in this first book. This story comes on the heels of other stories about Abraham and his family drama. First, Abram and Sarai migrate from their homeland, far away from their tribes and their native cultures, to settle in what will become the land of Israel. Abram and Sarai spend many decades praying for children, but reach old age without any heirs. At last, God comes to them and promises them a child. Both Sarah and her maid Hagar gave birth to Abraham's sons, and God reveals that Abraham will be the father of many nations, a patriarch of descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. But Hagar and her son Ishmael are driven out into the desert, forbidden from returning to Abraham's lands. Only one son remains, and Sarah is eager for Isaac to claim his birthright. At this point, Abraham receives a command from God to offer his one remaining son as a sacrifice. When God calls, Abraham responds, Here I am. And when God leads Abraham to the mountain, Isaac calls out, My father. And Abraham once again responds, Here I am. Abraham's devotion to God is matched only by his love for his child. He answers both calls, knowing that a choice has to be made. These family stories are complicated, even if we tend to gloss over them. There's fractured relationships, betrayal and jealousy, enough melodrama to make a modern soap opera blush. Try as we might to wrap up Abraham's story with a nice, neat bow. It is messy and real and raw. And the part of the story that we're focusing on today is possibly the most confusing and visceral of them all. Every time I hear this story from Genesis chapter 22, I get a little pit 
in my stomach. I can feel my insides twist themselves into knots. My heart begins to race and my palms begin to sweat. There's just something about this story that doesn't sit right with me. Something that unsettles me and jolts me out of the predictable story that I think that I know. I admit that it is hard for me to reconcile this story with the larger picture of scripture and the character of God that I see in other books of the Bible. Like these puzzle pieces fit together, but the picture they make is out of alignment somehow. I've come to the conclusion that this story only really works if you don't think too deeply about it. When I was a teenager and going through my first spiritual crisis, first of many, I was told by my well-intentioned youth pastor that the Bible is easy to understand if you don't question it too much. He told me that thinking too much and deconstructing too much or doubting too much would just result in confusion and angst and possibly the loss of my faith. If I wanted to keep believing in Jesus, he said, perhaps it was just better that I learned to accept some irregularities and inconsistencies. When I brought up the genocide of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua and this test of Abraham's obedience, many well-meaning adults in my life told me that it would just be easier if I focused on Jesus and more straightforward things like personal salvation. As you can imagine, I found this advice to be largely unhelpful, and for a long time, I felt completely alone with my doubts and my questions. I did feel a lot of confusion and angst, just as I had been told that I would, but I couldn't ignore it. I couldn't just push it down inside of me until it disappeared. I spent years wondering if I was the only one feeling conflicted about these parts of scripture. I asked God many times if I was the only one who felt this internal fracture, the only one who couldn't let it go and just trust. And as I was reading and praying and thinking this week, this story still makes me physically ache. Like Isaac is my own child like he is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I'm not a parent myself, but this story elicits a deep and gut-wrenching pain, which I can only imagine is magnified in the imagination of someone who has actually birthed a child or raised children or who have prayed and waited for a long time for a child as desperately as Abram and Sarai did. Over the past 15 years, since those conversations with my youth pastor and other adults in my life, I've heard a lot of different takes on this passage, some which have provided temporary relief for my angst, and many, many more that dismissed my concerns. I've heard preachers talk about this passage with such confidence, buoyed by a seemingly endless sense of assurance while I sat in the pew and drowned in my own doubt. I've heard sermons that say that God testing human beings in this way is totally normal and to be expected, while my face gets hot 
and I sat in silence, hoping that God decided that I would not be tested today. In the hands of a leader who thinks, who refuses to think too deeply about this text, or to engage it beyond the cliché, I think this story can actually be more than just superficial. It can actually be dangerous. The belief in unquestioning obedience can be used to justify all kinds of immoral or unjust actions, turning violence into God-ordained faithfulness. I remember one particular sermon in this last decade in which the pastor said that this story is the narrative of God's final test for Abraham. Because God has chosen Abraham and he has to be absolutely certain that he is up for the challenge of following God no matter what. After a lifetime of tests, this one thing Abraham needs to do to prove to God that he can trust him fully. This pastor went on to say that all human beings are tested by God so that God can see the evidence of our faith. And we too, one day, could be asked to do something that feels impossible. I sat in my seat, my hands growing clammy, a heavy burden of secret shame weighing on my shoulders. If God asked me to climb a mountain to sacrifice my child, my one chance for God's promises to come true the blessing that had been promised to me, I knew in my heart that I would fail. If I were to be tested in this way, I knew that I would be found unfaithful, that the truth of my wayward heart would be revealed for all to see. I suppose now is a good time to mention that child sacrifice was not an unusual practice among the Canaanites of Abraham's time. Abraham, as a neighbor to many of these Canaanites, would have at least been aware of this practice. But something being normalized isn't the same as something being good. In Abraham's mind, Yahweh, the God of his people, was supposed to be different than these other gods. Yahweh isn't supposed to be like the capricious and untrustworthy gods of the Canaanites. Yahweh is supposed to keep his promises to his people. So why would God go back on his word? Why would he fulfill the promise of a long-awaited child only to demand that child as proof of fidelity? Why would God offer a blessing if he was going to turn it into a curse? It is unfathomable to me and my doubting heart. In my work and in my spare time, I read a lot about family dynamics. Learning about attachment styles and generational trauma has given me language about how we relate to each other and the wounds that we carry with us and pass down to our children. Unhealthy attachment and the pain of trauma can create deep-seated trust issues, the kind of trust issues that cause estrangement and heartache and so much more. Trust issues and interpersonal relationships are difficult for sure. But what do you do when your trust issues aren't with another human being, but with the divine? Most days, I can believe that God is trustworthy. 
But if I'm honest, when I read a story like this one, my trust issues bubble up to the surface again, disturbing the peace, sending ripples of anxiety and uncertainty through my soul. I have heard God's call at various points in my life, sometimes faint and distant, sometimes loud and clear. I have answered calls to chaplaincy, to teaching, to multiple churches now, to cities that I've never been to before and to people I've never met. But a part of me is always nervous that this next call will be the one where I can't answer with the words, here I am. In the depths of my heart, I sometimes pray that God will not call me like he calls Abraham, that God won't ask something of me that would force me to choose. I selfishly ask God not to test me because my life already feels like enough of a test. Maybe you feel the same way. At the very end of this story, when the ram has appeared and Isaac is unbound and safe at last, Abraham declares that the Lord has provided. He proclaims that God is a different kind of God after all. He isn't thirsty for blood in the same way that the Canaanite gods are. Abraham names the place where the altar was built. He calls it, the Lord will provide. He celebrates God's gift and what God has done for him and his family. I've had this part of the passage used against me a few times, weaponized against my doubts when I've dared to express them. If Abraham could believe and trust in God during this test, and he received God's provision, then surely it should be easy for me by comparison to believe and trust in God's call, or at least that's what I've been told. I think we can celebrate the fact that God provided for Abraham and still feel uncertain about why God asked him to sacrifice Isaac in the first place. I think we can hope and pray that God will provide and still feel the full weight of the test. I don't think that trust and doubt are mutually exclusive in this scenario. And so, rather than jump to this triumphant ending, I'd like to sit in that space of tension for a few more minutes, if you'll let me. I'd like to take, I'd like to take a little tour through the part of the story that we skipped, Abraham and Isaac's journey up the mountain. All of the scholars that I read in preparation for this sermon mention that this story has rather obvious parallels to another very familiar story, the story of Jesus, almost as if these two stories are united in some way across space and time. The mountain to which God directs Abraham, the site of the sacrifice, becomes known as Mount Moriah, literally the mountain of the binding. This language is used only one other time in the entirety of scripture, in Second Chronicles, right at the end of the Hebrew Bible. In Second Chronicles, the author uses the name Mount Moriah to refer to the location of the temple at Jerusalem, the site of the Holy of Holies, 
God's dwelling place on earth. On this holy ground, Jesus speaks and teaches and is brought before the religious leaders who condemn him to die. Both Isaac and Jesus carry the wood that will be used for their sacrifice, knowing that these logs for the fire and this cross were for their own binding. Abraham and Isaac spent three days traveling to just the right spot for the altar. Three days of hiking and internal wrestling, both of them bearing heavy burdens. Jesus, too, felt the weight of the world, and his story has a three-day journey, too, from life to death and back to life. But perhaps the similarity that, similarity that stood out to me the most is this. In his painful last moments, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a direct quote from Psalm 22. Our psalm for this morning, Psalm 13, is strikingly similar to the, in tone to the one that Jesus uses to express his pain and his grief. It's the same anguish, the same confusion. Our psalmist writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? I think of this psalm often when yet another black person dies at the hands of police or when another child dies in the custody of ICE at our southern border. I thought of this psalm on Juneteenth, the day that we acknowledge that the last slaves in Texas did not hear about their emancipation until two years after the proclamation had been signed. I think of this psalm when injustice feels close at hand and God's kingdom seems so far away. I think of this psalm, too, when God has called me to something and in that moment it feels impossible. I think of this psalm when God has led me in a certain direction, but I am still lost and confused. I think of this psalm when God has told me to climb a mountain, but my feet are tired and my soul is weary. The lament of this psalm echoes inside of me. The vividness of the language, the vulnerability, the desperation, it lands right in my gut. How long, O oh Lord, our bodies cry out, from the fatigue of our own journeys. How long, Lord, our minds cry out, reeling from the anxieties of our days. How long, Lord, our souls cry out, wanting to believe in God's provision, but weighed down by questions and heavy burdens. How long, Lord, our feet chant in unison, as we march for police reform. How long, Lord, our tears seem to say as we grieve another loss.
as we witness another trauma. And I think of this psalm when I read the story of Abraham and Isaac. These words, written thousands of years after the journey up the mountain, seem to be a perfect companion as they climb. Even though Abraham responds to God's call with, Here I am, I can imagine that it is quite a different conversation happening in his head. He might have said, Here I am, but wanted to say, How long, Lord, until your promises will be fulfilled? How long, Lord, I waited for this son. I am heartsick at the thought of losing him. How long, Lord, until these tests are done and I have proven myself to you? How long, Lord, will you give me these commands but hide your face from me, leaving me to wrestle with my thoughts and my sorrow? And even though Isaac goes with his father willingly, and even though he perhaps knows his fate, I think the words of this psalm echo in his mind, too, generations before they were ever said aloud. How long, Lord, will we search for the right place? How long, Lord, until my life is over, taken from me? Will you forget me forever? The anguish is unspoken and unwritten. But as any parent or any child knows, it is real. I know that this story has a happy ending. We've already mentioned that. But I think a lot of us find ourselves in that liminal space, somewhere between the calling and the provision. I think many of us can relate to being in the middle ground, the journey between here I am and God provides. I think that so many Christians, in their own secret doubts, hidden away, find themselves on the hike up the mountain, on difficult paths, wanting to be obedient, but still desperate for relief. In the midst of this ongoing pandemic, and the generational and systemic injustice that permeates our lives. I think it's more than okay if we struggle to locate ourselves at either the beginning or the end of this story. If it feels tough to be brave right now, or impossible to choose. I think we can trust God's voice and believe that he isn't like other gods and still feel a swell of frustration and sometimes yell, How long, Lord? I think it's okay to wrestle with passages like these and feel the sorrow in our hearts while we wait for the ram to appear in the bushes. I think it's normal to have trust issues and to question, because I don't think God is asking for blind obedience or for untested and ignorant faith. I think it's okay to think deeply about these texts, even if they cause angst, because a faith that unsettles us out of our comfort zones is a faith that in many ways will set us free.
I think it's okay that the church has wrestled with this passage for centuries and that none of our answers have ever been fully satisfactory. I think it's okay to still be on the journey, to be putting one foot in front of the other, day after day, week after week, year after year. So thank you for being my traveling companions up the mountain this morning, my friends. The climb is always easier when you're not alone. Thank you for letting me be honest about my doubting heart, my faith that flickers like a candle, sometimes strong and lighting the way, and sometimes blown out by the wind. Thank you for carrying this burden with me, and thank you for sometimes allowing me to carry the burden for you. Amen.